this is something I'm able to do during an extraordinary time, I am obligated to do this for my community. And, and it's so important for our children who suddenly are at home and we're so scared. We were washing our bananas. We were quarantining the mail, you know, to see that there's a way that you can stay effective as a community member, even when you're scared. Sewing was a way for me in the evenings to kind of calm my anxiety and nerves about everything. And just, I'm a doer, so having those end results helped me to feel like I was making a difference and helping for not only myself and my family, but work and um, other people in the community. You know, I think at a time when a lot of us were feeling kind of helpless and not knowing like what we could do, like making masks was something that I knew I could do because it was just a skill, a skill that I had that was in demand that I could contribute. Hello and welcome to Vermont Untapped, a podcast from the Vermont Folklife Center that explores the state through the voices of its own residents. I'm Mary Wesley. Today, I'm really excited to be introducing something new, a three-part series about people who made masks during the pandemic. I'm also really excited to introduce my first ever co-host on Vermont Untapped, Eliza West. Hey, Mary. Eliza, it's been so fun to work on this project with you. When we decided to start interviewing mask makers, I thought of you immediately because you have been sewing masks since very early in the pandemic. I bought my, my first mask from you. Yeah, and thank you for the invitation. It has been fun to get to share a little bit of my perspective, but for me, it's also just been really great to get to talk to other people who are doing the same thing that I was, um, which was making face masks, just sitting at our sewing machines and sewing for month after month after month. Through our Listening in Place project, the VFC started documenting people's experiences during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. Part of this effort included collecting photos of people wearing their homemade masks. As we saw it, making and distributing masks to address the shortage of personal protective equipment, PPE, in the spring of 2020, was one of the ways that Vermonters were staying connected and taking care of each other. A year later, as the pandemic seemed to be easing here in Vermont, we started seeking ways to process and reflect on this collective experience. Realizing homemade masks were such a ubiquitous part of that, we chose to talk with some of the people who had been making those masks. And that's when I called Eliza. Whenever I have a sewing question, Eliza's the friend I ask. Eliza, you describe yourself as a textilian, both a sewer and a textile historian. Yeah, I do. So I'm a material culturalist with a specialization in textiles, and that means I study history through the fabric objects that people make and use in their daily lives. Mary, when you proposed this project to me, I was really interested in exploring what it meant for people to be making fabric masks in their homes, trying to keep their friends, families, and neighbors safe. Eliza and I interviewed about a dozen mask makers across the state. We tried to talk to a range of people, a variety of ages and backgrounds, as well as people with a variety of connections to the mask making effort. Everything from the person who got their sewing machine out of their closet to make a few masks for friends and family, to the owner of a small local craft store, which supplied the materials for almost 10,000 masks. Mary, I think we agree that these were amazing conversations. I knew they were going to be about more than sewing when we started this project, because making masks was about way more than that for me. 
It was about helping, about surviving, and about connecting. And those feelings, I think, were pretty universal. I agree, Eliza. I loved doing these interviews. As we interviewed more and more people, we realized we would not be able to say everything we wanted in one episode. So this is a three-part miniseries. We're so grateful to everyone who spoke with us as part of this project, many of whom you'll hear from in this first episode. And just a note that we conducted these interviews over Zoom, and we weren't always able to get perfect audio quality. You can read a full transcript of the episode on our website. All right, let's hear from some of our mask makers. Mary, in the early days of the pandemic, we were all experiencing a lot of anxiety and uncertainty. As the CDC changed and refined its guidance about who should be wearing masks, the shortage of PPE became really apparent. Those early days felt very chaotic. You know, like the the advice on whether to wear a mask changed sometimes every few hours or how to make a mask. There were all these scientific studies coming out about particles going through different materials. And I was, I was reading like particle acceleration studies. And, you know, I, I'm a writer. <laughs> I have friends who are um, frontline physicians and nurses and doctors and um, people, even veterinarians who would call me and say they didn't have anything. Could I make them something? Our local hospital, uh, Bratton Memorial Hospital, which we live about three blocks from, put out an urgent call saying, we don't have enough masks for our people. Please, can you, if you have a sewing machine, make one at home. Here's a pattern. Here's materials. Because as soon as the hospitals realized they had enough masks, the CDC said, maybe you should wear a mask. But no one had a mask and, you know, no, you know, there were no clothing factories producing anything like that. There just wasn't anything available. As people started identifying this need, many sewers saw there was an opportunity to contribute to a solution. But before March of 2020, almost no one knew how to make a face mask. Early in the pandemic, um, my mom actually came and stayed with us for a while in order to watch the kids so that I could go to work. Um, and just, uh, she's the one who said, people need masks. And so she showed up at my house with her old sewing machine and an entire suitcase full of fabric and like turned my dining room into a sewing studio. And so she was like, there's a need. This is what we do. Um, and I was not, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't even know how to change a bobbin. So I went online and I just started looking around, like, how can you make a face mask? And I found a pattern. I made them for my family. I made them for friends who contacted me because they knew I could sew. And, um, you know, after a while, I was making 250 to 300 a week because there was just such an incredible need. And um, there was really no place to get them right away initially. So I found, for example... I could draw out the shape of the mask on the fabric and cut all the pieces while watching a movie with my kids. But I had to do all the elastic and turning it inside out when I was really focused and there was nothing else that I was doing. So what I would often take the pieces and really separate them into my life, like where I could fit them into my life. 
Eliza, does any of this sound familiar? Yeah, this is all super relatable to my experience. And Mary, do you remember in the opening when I mentioned that I spent a lot of time thinking while I was making masks? Well, it turns out the opportunity to contemplate and meditate while sewing was important for other makers, too. As we conducted these interviews, we began to see mask-making as a lens through which we can explore the tension between helplessness and agency that so many of us have struggled with during the pandemic. We were all working hard to stay afloat in a time when we had very little control. For a lot of mask-makers, sewing PPE was a way of taking back a little bit of that control. I found mask making to be very meditative. I've always enjoyed sewing for that. Um, for me to be able to make masks and then give them away was really important, I think, for me to feel like I had something to give to the community and the world when I was really isolated. And I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not a scientist. I couldn't battle the pandemic in other ways, but I could you know, research filters and figure out how to get something that was equivalent to personal protective equipment and N95s at the time when those were not available. Um, I remember sending them to friends and family all over the country as my own way to be like, you know, I can't save you, I can't protect you, but maybe I can give you a filtered mask and that can help you. You know, the whole thing with COVID is, you know, I was home the whole time in my house for over a year and um, because of health things and it, it thinking about it, it wasn't just that I could give to the community, but it was actually giving to myself because I had something to occupy my mind with rather than worrying and being afraid and, you know, worst case scenario, I was able to channel that energy into making these masks. So for me, it was, it was a give and receive thing. Like I said, I'm a doer, I'm a fixer. It was very thera therapeutic for me. So people would say, oh, could you make me one or two masks? Or could you make me 10 masks? And I was happy to do that and just say, you know, here's the time frame. I'm still working. I went to work every day during the pandemic that it wasn't I wasn't just sitting at home. So people were very patient and tolerant and I was happy to do that. It never felt like a, a labor for me. And a lot of it I did because I wanted to, and it just felt like the right thing to do. Wow, Mary, this is so true that mask making felt good, but it was also really complicated for me. Because of my work studying the history of textiles and craft, a lot of the time I was sewing, I was thinking about labor practices and what it has meant through the years for people, particularly women, to earn their living by their needles, often in their own homes. The early days of lockdown created a huge disruption in many people's working lives. And for mask makers, this meant thinking about how or if they wanted to get compensated for their time. For Matt Brittenham-Jones, whose job at the UVM bookstore continued remotely, mask-making was an act of service. I was, at that point, working from home, you know, and I was fully employed when a lot of people weren't. Um, I didn't have a ton of spare time, and I didn't have the need of the money from it. And 
frankly, just making them again for friends and family and making like a few batches for local projects was a ton of work. And so like, I can't imagine that I would have actually wanted to take on more work to actually make them to sell. And the thing is, like, I know a lot of people did make masks to sell and and no shade on them for doing that because there was a demand, it was needed. And, you know, if you're working like that, like you definitely deserve to make money, but it wasn't why I was doing it. And I didn't want the pressure of the money. And some people really wanted to give me money for them. Like they didn't feel comfortable taking them without giving me money. And in those cases, you know, maybe they um, would give me coffee or they would give me fabric or whatever. And I just really didn't feel comfortable taking any money from it because I didn't, I didn't see it as a profession or like I didn't, and I didn't want to see it that way. Yeah, Eliza, the first masks I got for me and my family were made by you and I paid you for them. It was a business transaction. But because you're my friend and because I couldn't sew a mask to literally save my life, it felt like you were providing a real gift of service. I mean, I needed a mask to go to the grocery store, and you popped up in my Facebook feed and told me exactly how I could get one, easily and simply. I had a lot of people thank me for making masks. And most of the time, I ended up responding by telling them that rather than an act of service, for me, it felt like a business. I've earned my living as a sewer before, and I know how much my time is worth. When I started making masks, I calculated how much it would cost and eventually figured out a price point that worked for me and my customers. And while it wasn't just about money for me, it was actually a substantial part of my income for over a year. I was really interested in how other mask makers had dealt with this idea of the value of their labor versus just meeting the urgent need for masks. So in the interviews that I conducted, I asked about this pretty pointedly. I'm really grateful to Nancy Bell for discussing this with me in the context of her mask-making work. Nancy is a professional seamstress who was unable to carry out her normal income-generating work doing alterations in the early months of the pandemic. Like Matt, she felt a real obligation to help out by making masks available to her community for free. But in her case, this meant not getting paid for something that she normally would have charged people for. I really did feel that pressure and, and I, um, I really didn't know what to do about it. I didn't have any customers and I, 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 I found this whole experience terrifying, really terrifying. And I didn't know what else to do. Um, and I did feel obliged. I did feel pressured and I don't know. I don't know why I decided looking back now, I don't know why I decided not to sell them. I, I think it was some sort of bizarre, weird bargain I made with myself that maybe if I, if I do this, everyone will be safe. Um, you know, maybe if I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I do know that people don't value what they don't pay for. And um, that's an interesting thing too. And, and I very much want these skills valued. I want people to want these skills. I really want people to learn what I know and share this. And when I found out that there were so many people sewing, I, I was like, yay, sewing's not dead. Cause you know, in this circle of friends, you, you tend to be like the only one who sews or everybody's coming to you all the time. Honestly, it does get a little irritating. I can imagine it must be like, 
if you're a doctor or a veterinarian or a lawyer and you're at a cocktail party and everybody wants to chew your ear about their business and they're not calling you during office hours, <laughs> like it's that kind of thing. Like, oh, you have the, the skill. You must want to do this for me for nothing. Um, yeah, it's a very challenging thing. I'm glad, I'm glad people um, had the freedom to choose for themselves what was right for them. I'm not sure that what I chose for myself was right for me. I just think that that's kind of how I felt pushed. I really am so grateful to Nancy for talking about these complex feelings with me. This was one of the conversations that really helped me process the mask-making work that I was doing, too. It wasn't just hobby sewers like Matt and sole proprietors like Nancy and I who were making masks, though. For Eli Coglin galbraith the co-owner of the custom binder and sports bra company Shapeshifters, the pandemic brought on the extra stress of figuring out how to keep paying their employees. Eli, like so many others we've heard from this episode, found mask making soothing, in part because making masks was a way their team could keep working even while helping the community. The pandemic stress for me was heavy and omnipresent because we are an immunocompromised household. And also, I take it very seriously that our employees depend on us for wages and to live. and. The fact that we got through this pandemic without ever decreasing wages for employees or skipping any wages for employees, and also without anyone in our entire company getting COVID, was such a huge accomplishment. And it was something I, both of these things, I stressed about every week. So being able to sit down and make a mask and sew a mask and not stress about either money or the plague for a minute, for let's be real, six hours <laughs> every few days uh, when it was my shift in the studio and I could just come in and sew for six hours. It was wonderful. It was great. And I can't help but imagine that a lot of mask makers felt the same way. Ah, here is something I can do, something that doesn't require me to worry or think but at the end of it, there is something that might even a little bit help. It's huge. It's huge. Each person we spoke to through this project approached mass making from within their own complex set of circumstances, which in turn shaped their experience of the pandemic overall. This is what we're exploring through this series. In this episode, we've seen how anxiety, craft, and economic concerns played into mask making. We've also seen that another big part of this common experience was a sense of accomplishment in our ability to make things and take care of each other when the need arises. Mask making kind of reminded me like, yeah, we don't need to mass produce things in China. We can go right back to our roots. We can do what we need to do for us. And that's another little piece that kind of kept flipping back to that. Um, you can hold something from the gap and something from your neighbor in your hand and realize that your neighbor had the skills to do this. We had the audacity to do for ourselves what needed to be done. And I love that. I'm so proud to have been part of that. As hard as it all was, I feel really proud of that too. I feel proud of all of us. We've just barely t 
teased the threads of what Eliza and I were lucky enough to hear in the course of this interview project. Just wait until we start talking about elastic. In the next installment of this three-part series, we'll hear more about the collaborations that people and businesses came up with to address the need for face masks. In this episode, you heard the voices of Aaron Agoyo, Jennifer Matthews, Matt Brittenham Jones, Nancy Bell, Eli Coughlin Galbraith, Tammy McNamara, Serenity Smith Fortune, and Vicki Lamprin. I highly recommend you check out the show notes for this Mask Maker series, which you can find at www.vtfolklife.org/untapped. You'll find photos, bonus audio clips, mask patterns, and more. You'll also find more information about all the amazing people we interviewed for this project. VT Untapped is produced by me, Mary Wesley. My brilliant co-producer and co-host for this series is Textilian Eliza West. Our executive producer, who also happens to be the VFC archivist, is Andy Kolovos. The cello music in this show was recorded by Dave Hoy, and the other musical tracks are from Pete's Posse, www.petesposse.com. If you liked listening to this show, please tell others to look us up and subscribe. Thanks for listening.